Hello and welcome to Interpreting India. I'm Srinath Raghavan and this is a podcast presented by Carnegie India. Every two weeks, we bring to you voices from India and around the world as we unpack the role of technology, the economy and foreign policy in shaping India's relationship with the world. For our inaugural episode, I'm joined by Nandan Nilakani, chairman of Infosys Technologies Limited, a company which he co-founded in 1981. Nandan is also the co-founder and chairman of Akestep, a not-for-profit effort to create a learner-centric, technology-based platform to improve basic literacy and numeracy for millions of children. He was the first chairman of the Unique Identification Authority of India in the rank of a cabinet minister. Nandan has also written two books, Imagining India and, with Viral Shah, Rebooting India, Realizing a Billion Aspirations. Nandan, welcome to Interpreting India and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Srinath. Nandan, you've always emphasized the importance of seeing India's growth story in the context of globalization as a whole. Uh, and at various points, you've made some very important interventions, initially about how the world was getting flatter and more recently about how some trends towards deglobalization have been playing out. So maybe we could begin by getting some thoughts on you on where you see the state of play of globalization itself. Well, uh, I think that uh, in globalization, we are at a very interesting juncture because we had a period of about 40 years when the world went through a lot of globalization. The you know, global trade went up quite a bit. Global trade grew faster than global GDP for many years. And I think there are two reasons for that. One was a containerization, which made it possible to dramatically reduce the cost of shipping things back and forth. And that led to being people being able to make something in China and ship it to the U.S. very cheaply. And the second was the Internet, which connected all of us. And that's what led to something like the world is flat, which uh, Tom Friedman wrote about. So the combination of containerization for products and the Internet and broadband connectivity for services led to a massive you know, interaction among countries leading to more trade. And that also was uh, assisted by the fact that the Berlin Wall fell the WTO became very important. China joined the WTO and so on. So all, they were all like uh, pro-globalization moves. But I think the last three, four years, we have seen some kind of a reaction to that. Uh, you know, the election of President Trump or Brexit are all basically saying that the voting folks in the West have soured on globalization because they haven't seen improvements in their lifestyle. Uh, purchasing power has not gone up. They're seeing immigration. So there's clearly a, a reaction to globalization. And then, of course, we are seeing the, you know, the other sort of trade wars and so on. So I think, yes, I think after 30, 40 years of uh, globalization, we are seeing uh, a retreat from that. What does this mean for India's growth trajectory, right? Around the time of Brexit and Trump's coming to power in 2016, uh, you actually questioned the received wisdom in India about export-led manufacturing growth being the way forward and argued instead that India's growth drivers going forward will largely be from domestic consumption and not necessarily export, services, not manufacturing, and platform aggregation and not big companies. So how do you see the current situation of the Indian economy, especially in the context of some trends towards slowdown, which may be shorter term, and how do you think it fits with this story of globalization which you painted out? Yeah, so you see, my thesis is that when you look at how other Asian countries uh, went from you know, developing to more of a developed status. Whether you look at the story of Japan, South Korea, Southeast Asia, China, they all had a very good proven formula. They got into manufacturing, 
Uh, initially, they began manufacturing very simple things, shoes and so on. Ultimately, they went to more sophisticated things like software and planes and so on. So they, they went on this thing and they leveraged globalization to export these things to the rest of the world, especially the Western world. And that was their path to economic growth and higher incomes. Now, unfortunately, both these uh, levers of uh, global uh, countries' development have been, in, in some sense, reduced. On the globalization front, we talked about it, the fact that now there's a tendency towards deglobalization, and therefore that same momentum is not there for uh, globalization and trade. And on manufacturing, what we are seeing today is a dramatic increase in automation in manufacturing, uh, thanks to robotics, 3D manufacturing, you know, AI, all these things are making manufacturing very, very technology intensive and very, with very few people. And we are seeing that even in India, where we are seeing factories in automobile industry and others, which have very few employees. So both the combination of technology automation in manufacturing, as well as the fact that the global forces of globalization have come down, means that India can't adopt that model of growth. And especially because India has never been a terrific manufacturing country, we have lack of physical infrastructure and so on. So my thesis is that it has to be driven by domestic growth. It has to be driven more by services between companies. And we have to look at all these new ways of platform aggregation and see how we can create platforms that aggregate either people or small organizations and create jobs and economic growth. So that's been my thesis for the last two to three years. I have no reason to disbelieve this thesis. There is, of course, that's the secular part of it. There's, of course, the cyclical part of it about the economy slowing down and all that, which is a different set of things. But finally, the same things are required to get growth going, which is how do we empower millions of small businesses to hire more people? So there is one school of thought, especially in this current moment, which says that given the US-China trade war and the kinds of friction that are happening and the policies being adopted by the United States, it is quite likely that some of the integrated supply chains of Asia will likely be rewired and companies look to move out of China. And then there may actually be a possibility that a country like India has some opportunity to sort of, you know, fit into those shoes, so to speak. Uh, do you think that's a possibility for us in a realistic sense? I mean, that's, uh, it, it sounds plausible, but I think uh, to execute on that requires a lot of uh, strategy and very good on-the-ground uh, execution. Uh, two things. One is that India is not the only choice for such a thing happening. I mean, countries like Vietnam and others are doing a lot of work on that. Second is that the once the labor content of manufacturing goes down, manufacturing will move back onshore. You know, so manufacturing will move back to the US or to Europe because now labor is not the determining factor of costs and it's all tech oriented. And we have seen that, you know, a lot, you know, a lot of car manufacturing, for example, Tesla makes its cars in, in the US. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, a company like Adidas, which is a world leader in shoes, has now set up very sophisticated shoe manufacturing plants in Germany with very few employees using 3D manufacturing and all that stuff. So I think uh, while, yes, it's true, and maybe it's true, for example, for mobile phones, because India being a huge consumer of mobile phones, it makes sense to have massive mobile phone factories in India, which not only cater to domestic consumption, but can also be an alternative source of exports into Western markets. So... We are seeing some of that in mobile phones. But as an entire strategy to f address India's growth, I don't think that's enough. And 
I suppose the allure of manufacturing and the reason why, you know, we constantly, especially debates among economists, scholars of development, uh, you know, tends to sort of always converge on manufacturing is because there is a sense that manufacturing provides formal employment of a kind, uh, you know, high quality jobs, you know, which is our vision of what, you know, a developing economy looks like. But do you think that's going to be a very different story in the case of India? Well, first of all, as I said, manufacturing is becoming very, very high tech. So instead of hiring thousands of people with school uh, education, you're going to hire hundreds of people with computer science degrees. So it's it will create jobs for the, the elites who go to engineering college, but not for the larger group. And in addition, India is also hobbled by the fact that we don't have universal education. All these countries I mentioned, uh, Japan, Southeast, uh, South Korea, Southeast Asia, China, all pretty much had universal education when they started the journey. So they had people who were who could operate machines and so on. We don't have that either. So it's not clear to me how this manufacturing thing is going to work out. I want to sort of talk a little bit about what the current state of play is in terms of the dynamic between technology and society in India. And uh, you have made this argument consistently that the combination of smartphone penetration and usage, internet connectivity and its penetration, and Aadhaar, a tool which you pioneered, uh, will actually be a transformative force in India. We have already seen the government's efforts to link some of these tools to its bank accounts under the Jandhan Yojana. How do you see the current state of play with JAM, as Arvind Subramaniam called it uh, when he was in government? Yeah, I think uh, Arvind uh, coined that uh, beautiful phrase, Jandhan Aadhaar Mobile. And uh, uh, it's, I think, very important because I think a lot of the reforms that have happened, especially in social welfare delivery, have been made possible by this, by these three things. So Aadhaar gave 1.2 billion people a digital identity, which was unique. Uh, the mobile phone revolution uh, and further accelerated by new players like Jio coming in has created, made India a place for 4G connectivity with very low very low prices on data and cheap smartphones. So we're seeing 300-400 million people now with smartphones and other people are slowly going to migrate from their feature phones to smartphones. And I think the push of the government towards making banking more inclusive uh, program the Jandan Yojana, which opened 330 million bank accounts in the first first five years of the government, uh, is going to make banking ubiquitous. Now, why this is important is that if you have a digital identity, if you have a bank account, and if you have a mobile phone, then essentially you can transact a lot of your life on that device. Your interactions with government, your receives of benefits, your payment of taxes, uh, you know, everything can be done on your banking, everything can be done on your phone. And therefore, now we have a new uh, capability in society to distribute services and benefits in a way that we could not do before, which is why I think we already benefited from this. If you look at many of the social welfare programs of the last few years, they have all been made possible only because of uh, these technologies. And we are in the early days of that, in the sense we're going to see more and more of that in the coming years. And what do you see as the next frontiers for this combination of Aadhaar, mobile phones, internet? Uh, what well, other kinds of revolutions can happen uh, in, in this context? Uh, well, I think, first of all, uh, let's take the distribution of benefits itself. Uh, the last five years has been about distribution of benefits at the central government level. So you've seen uh, LPG subsidies going as cash transfers and then people paying market price for cylinders, then people giving up the cylinders, then the money being saved from that invested in giving... Uh, poor people, uh, gas connections, so the Ujala scheme is a good example of that thing and that was possible only because technology existed to make subsidies a cash transfer. 
the next phase of that journey is going to be state level su uh, subsidies so i think while we have done it for lpg and scholarships and so on the next is states using it for electricity subsidies and water subsidies and i think getting electric subsidy at uh, into cash into a farmer's account but he buys the power at market price means that suddenly the electric companies can operate on competition efficiency and not we can now confuse whether the losses are because they're being leaked or whether it's going to a farmer so we remove all that so it can it can make the electricity sub uh, sector revive water is another place where you can give a cash transfer to farmers and let them pay market price on water or whatever price you have so i think the next is the states adopting that that's one part the other part is the deepening of financial services right so what you're saying is the formalization of the economy where more and more people are becoming part of the formal economy as taxpayers and so on uh, and gst for example has brought in 11 million businesses onto gst and that will lead to the deepening of financial services so i think our whole economy operates on a very narrow set of people who pay taxes, who have bank accounts, who buy cars. It's very, very narrow. The broadening of that is going to happen because of jam and other technologies. So one of the sort of uh, criticisms which was made of Aadhaar uh, in the past years was about issues relating to privacy and what were the kind of uh, you know, trade-offs that we had to make. And we had a, a, a important Supreme Court verdict on that. Uh, are you happy now with the state of play? Do you think that we've struck the right kind of balances between various considerations of empowerment, use of technology, but also making sure that citizens' rights are also protected? Have we come to some kind of a compromise which can work? I think we have come to an excellent point of equilibrium. Uh, I think uh, in some sense, Aadhaar became a, a sort of a catalyst for thinking about these issues of uh, privacy in India. I think uh, the Aadhaar case is the second longest case in the history of the Indian Supreme Court. So clearly it took a lot of time. And the Aadhaar case led to a very fundamental question. Is privacy a fundamental right at all? And that, as you know, went to a nine-judge bench. And the nine-judge bench came with a historical judgment, which I thought was brilliant. We said that, yes, privacy is a fundamental right. At the same time, the state can circumscribe part of that privacy for certain social goals. And they identified four things, protection of uh, uh, revenue, uh, making benefit transfer more efficient, law and order, national security. And they said, if you do circumscribe, it should be by base of a law. And then they said the law should be reasonable and proportional to the goal you have, which is a very well-articulated uh, uh, framework. And then they tested Aadhaar against this framework and upheld Aadhaar as meeting that. So to me, that argument is over. Supreme Court has defined what is the framework for privacy, tested Aadhaar again, Aadhaar meets the test. So that's, that is over. And I think uh, the government subsequently has passed laws on Aadhaar about who can use it. So banks can use it, mobile companies can use it, private people can use it on a voluntary basis. So I think we have moved tremendously to reach a, a, a point of arrival which is stable and I'm certainly very happy with the outcome. So the other issue which seems to be sort of roiling not just India but many countries across the world uh, in terms of this emerging interface between technology and society is this concern about fake news and how the penetration of some of these devices which are empowering can also sort of be a device for spreading disinformation on pretty large aggregate scales and we've seen accusations about Russian interference in American elections and so on, right? And India is a country which is apparently particularly prone to this because of the penetration of apps like WhatsApp where it is very difficult, which are totally secured and quality controlling uh, in any public platform, uh, unlike any other public platform, is very difficult. So 
how do you see societies, uh, particularly countries like India, dealing with the challenges that technology will pose on, on the sort of downside of it, so to speak? Well, I think this is not a problem or challenge in India alone. It's a global challenge. And this global challenge stems from a regulatory decision taken in 1996. So in 1996, when the internet was a fledgling uh, network, uh, the uh, American, uh, you know, the Congress passed this law called the Communication Decency Act. And in that, Section 230 of the Communication Decency Act essentially gave a waiver on liability to internet platforms. And this was because at that time, internet platforms were fledgling platforms. They had to be promoted. So they got a waiver. Now, no other media has a waiver. If, if you're a newspaper and write an article, and you can be sued for libel. But this has given all internet platforms, uh, you know, there's no liability. They're just, they're just a pipe or we're just a platform. And that, in some sense, has led to this situation where because there's no obligation on the platform to ensure the quality of or the reliability or the veracity of the material on the platform, you have all these developments. So there's a big reaction to this around the world. I think one is, of course, uh, this information, the election meddling stuff. Then there's a freedom of speech. Where does freedom of speech end? Where does it begin? Then there's security. If everything is going to be encrypted, then and is a genuine person out there who's a security risk, how do we figure that out? So I think technology has now become uh, so much into uh, societal issues that we are now going to see a fragmentation of the internet. So the whole uh, sort of exceptionalism that we'll have one internet for the world, I don't think that's happening. Already the the Chinese have demonstrated that they have created their own internet. They put the Chinese firewall, created their own national champions, etc. Uh, the Russians are doing that. Europe is bringing in privacy laws different from uh, elsewhere. So now it's the so-called splinter net, where because of the societal impact of technology, countries will want to bring all these technologies within their domain on security, on privacy, on antitrust, on uh, fake news. So, and they will perforce force these technology will force the internet to behave differently in different parts of the world. So you foresee some kind of a balkanization of the internet. Yes, that's why it's called splinternet. It's a balkanization. And uh, so you want that whole notion that there's one internet which is common across the world will, will really get uh, sent out. And that clearly will have implications for how the future of globalization itself plays yeah, out. Yeah, because just like... Uh, the, the physical world globalization is facing a set of challenges. The digital world of globalization also, because it's balkanization or whatever, will also lead to, you know, everybody having their own version. So coming back to India, uh, another domain of technology where you pointed to the importance uh, are the new age platform aggregators. You've, you know, you've identified companies like Amazon and Flipkart to Uber and Ola. And you suggest that service sector jobs, which are going to be opened by these, is likely to be the best way for India to sort of direct its transition. Where do you think the future of platform aggregation in the Indian context is? And how do you see this particular sector developing as we go forward? I think platform aggregation is uh, very, very important. It's both in terms of transforming the economy as well as job creation. I mean, I think if Amazon and uh, Flipkart and, uh, you know, Paytm Mall and all the others, uh, Big Basket, are all have literally thousands of small suppliers on their platform. And if they're able to give those small suppliers access to markets and so on, those guys are going to invest, grow, and, and hire more people. So that's one way of doing it. Then you have the whole mobility uh, you know, platforms, Uber, Ola, and so on. 
they in turn you know already had half a million drivers they will have more people on the platform food delivery is a big thing today india does about 3 million food deliveries a day that should go to about 10 million a day uh, food delivery and you have multiple players your swiggy zomato uber eats food panda and so on and they will then invest in so i think these are all going to be big job creators now there are some concerns about the gig economy whether they have a safety net and so on so there you know other issues that we have to think about but certainly these are going to create millions of jobs now is that going to be enough it's not clear to me but the other sectors right i mean manufacturing uh, transportation all that will create uh, jobs and another area which you've sort of identified recently is big data and its manifold implications for a country like india in fact uh, if i can quote to you from your address to fiki in april this year you said that once data becomes the basis for decision making in many sectors you will see a very big change uh, can you tell us a little bit about how the advent of big data will change the way that we've been dealing with problems say like public service delivery and what does this change actually look like well i think there are many aspects with data very complex thing which has many facets i think obviously aggregation of data of different kinds will and applying ai to that data will allow you to do a lot more prediction of possibilities so for example big data can be used in a, a financial system to catch fraud we you know today part of a pro- whole problem is people don't pay taxes or people borrow and don't return money so a lot of that can be captured by applying ai to big data or you can apply big data to uh, uh, ai to language translation you know india is a country of multiple languages you can apply to weather forecasting so there's a lot of those macro kind of things that are possible but there's also another thing which is how do we apply data to improve a person's life and this is really where india is now on the cutting edge with the data empowerment architecture what has happened is that in the west people were economically rich before they became data rich and therefore the business models that emerged were largely around advertising and other things where you could use your data to target you to show an ad to you and that's how they some of these companies have built the business model uh, and in china it's also been uh, you know for the state law and order and so on in india because of the data empowerment architecture which is unique to india we actually have a way now of individuals and small businesses using their own data to get some benefit so i can use my own data to get me a loan i can use my own data to get me better healthcare and so on so this is what we call as data empowerment where instead of data being used by corporations and countries it will be used by individuals and small businesses and this concept of data empowerment is absolutely unique and india is really leading the thinking on this and i'm confident that this idea has global applicability there is seems to be another area where you know global sort of developments are likely to impinge on india's future particularly with relation to how much technology interfaces with society uh, and here i'm talking about the advent of the 5g sort of rollout which is happening and it is happening against the backdrop of this us china sort of competition which is in some ways described as a trade war but i think actually is more about technology about who gets to set global technological standards for this new 5g sort of infrastructure which is going to be rolled out how do you think that particular competition is likely to impinge on india's own adoption of 5g because you know we have tried to sort of resist some of these wider global currents pressures on india saying do not go with this supplier or chinese firms and so on uh, but but how do you think india should be playing this game no i think it's a 
the navigation of this is going to be extremely subtle and nuanced uh, because uh, you know india needs to implement 5g india is already a leader in 4g it has to implement 5g and obviously in the next few years 5g license will be optioned and all that stuff and 5g is important because it gives very high uh, speeds low latency and you know it's meant for a small burst of things it's very good for iot and iot in turn means it's good for all kinds of new things happening so do we definitely need 5g at the same time we need i think we should focus on making sure our infrastructure of 5g is secure for our own benefit you know it's not so much about who supplies the infrastructure but do you have a layer of software uh, encryption and all that on top of that which ensures that your data is secure so to me that's more where i would i would focus purely on how to make our 5g implementation more secure not worry so much about who is the supplier and you had earlier on uh, mentioned that you know the combination of artificial intelligence big data internet of things is also going to change the way that a lot of information technology companies themselves work and early in your career of course you were part of this whole new wave of sort of indian it services export you pioneered a model uh, infosys as a company did that at that point of time uh, i just wonder what your assessment of the current potentialities for india in that sector are given all of these dynamic changes which are taking place well i think india has uh, very good opportunities in this new sector you see what happened in 2007 the iphone came out and the iphone led to a massive shift from pcs to smartphones and led to new leaders coming like google and apple and facebook and so on and that's been the biggest shift and everybody is now used to this consumer experience on the phone touch screen you know everything is so simple to use now businesses have not adapt, adopt, adapted uh, adopted these technologies that fast but now because of the uh, challenge from digital natives and others in every industry we are realizing that unless companies reinvent themselves in a more digital way uh, their future is you know challenged and so across the board automobile companies media companies everybody is now saying how do we become more digital and i think that's the big role and opportunity for uh, firms like infosys is if you can solve or help these large incumbents navigate the future to become digital the opportunity is huge and do you think there's an opportunity also for the government of india to be able to play a wider role in how these new sets of technologies this new patterns of globalization uh, what are the kinds of norms that will govern them i remember, recall that you know after the 2008 global financial crisis you had actually advocated that india should play an important role in recasting the global financial architecture yeah. and that of course led to the g20 and uh, i remember you had mooted this idea even before the g20 had come out you're giving me too much credit but I... but uh, at this point of time do you think there is an opportunity absolutely i think uh, a number of areas i think digital identity is is something which uh, is now becoming a global idea uh, there's a group called id for d at the world bank it's actually chaired jointly by the ceo of the world bank and the deputy secretary general of the united nations amina mohammed they're both chairing this there were 20 to 30 countries that wanted to do digital id uh, so that's a big thing happening and india has built an open source version of id to for these countries to use id is one place payments is another place uh, india has built a very sophisticated payment infrastructure called unified payment interface absolutely state of the art and designed for as a common payment rail that multiple people can use 
that's that's about 800 million transactions a month you know growing very rapidly and i believe that's another thing which has global applicability uh, our data empowerment architecture which allows people to use their own data is a third big contribution so i think i see four models of technology there's the us model which have been a laissez faire model market led but now facing some challenges and you know you, you, that's why you have all these things happening in in the us there's the chinese model which is a state led model there's a european model which is more about protection which is the gdpr kind of model and there's the india model which is using identity payments and data empowerment so we have actually tremendous contribution that we can make to the global conversation on the future of technology so looking ahead say to another 20 years or so what do you think are the sort of biggest challenges that india will have to face in its transformation and what role do you think will technology play in enabling the transformation well i'm a big believer that india's intractable and large challenges can only be met using technology but using it wisely and uh, properly it's not about some you know brute force approach it is about thinking about it and all you talked about what we have done with id and so on. so i think for example education there is no way that we'll be able to address the challenge of universal literacy in a short period of time unless we leverage the power of technology and here the indian government has been leading uh, they have the diksha program very very powerful program to bring in technology actually improve teacher capability and learning outcomes uh, i think healthcare you know healthcare again uh, you know today with getting devices which can do diagnostics on the cell phone any kind of diagnostics so we now have the power ability to have health diagnostics done at a fraction of the cost of big machines and then you have the ai capability at the back to to understand that data and make some kind of assist a a worker to give better health advice so this can make a big difference in healthcare so i am convinced that india's intractable challenges in education healthcare and all that can actually be uh, sort of addressed with technology so before we end this episode uh, i'd like to ask you a little bit about what you're currently reading and if there are any books that you might recommend to our listeners today well i'm reading the book on uh, american capitalism uh, by ellen greenspan and it's about the evolution of us capitalism it's a book given to me by my friend mani sabarwal who reads one book a week i can't catch it, so i have to i'm sort of 52 weeks behind him or something i do one book a year or something but yeah i'm reading that book which manish gave me and are you also writing a book at this point of time i'm thinking of a book on data and uh, and uh, it's still forming it's not yet fully there nandan nilkarni thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your insights thank you shrina thank you for having me on your podcast thank you for listening to this episode of interpreting india a podcast presented every two weeks by carnegie india i'm shrinath raghavan for more information about the podcast and the production team you can follow us on social media and visit our web page 